He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's been a blessing to be here this morning. I um, enjoyed the devotional and the singing and the Sunday school. Just fascinated time and time again how that we can approach the scriptures and as the bread of life is broken to us, we can be satisfied and we find living water. And I can testify that that has been my experience this morning and I hope yours as well together with me. I have a sermon this morning that I'd like to, that I have wanted to preach for a long time already. And um, I guess I finally found the time or whatever, but I have a sermon I'd like to preach about the Song of the Redeemed. It's a sermon about music and singing and so on. And I asked Kindley if he could read Isaiah chapter 35. And the reason for that is verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And we read that description of the prophecy of the, that prophetic description of the church. And the, I think we could, I think we could with benefit read chapter 34 that's just previous to this passage. And it talks about judgment and destruction It starts out with, Come near ye nations to hear and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all the things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to slaughter. And he goes on and he talks about that it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion, and he talks about how that there's going to be a pitch in the streams, and there's just going to be just this horrible judgment on the nations. The thorns will come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses, and it shall be a habitation of dragons and a court for owls. And the wild beasts of the desert shall meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, and the screech owl also shall rest there. And find for herself a place of rest. It's this place of destruction and desolation. And just a place that is abandoned by God. And so that's the context of chapter 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It's because of that renewing work and because of that place that God has given his people that they have a song to sing the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads why do we sing why is singing so powerful 
One of the things that you're going to have to give me a little bit of space with uh, this morning is that not everybody thinks of singing the same way. Some people aren't near as um, maybe, well, what's the right way to say this? Tuned um, to singing as, as others are. Some people think all music is noise. Some people think all music is beautiful. Well, I can't really quite relate to either one of those. And um, so, so maybe this, maybe this uh, idea of, of music being uh, powerful doesn't resonate with you. But I'm going to say that as a general rule, it does. Singing is really, really potent. Perhaps the most famous quote about this was attributed to Andrew Fletcher, a Scottish politician 300-some years ago. Apparently, these aren't his right words, but uh, this is the saying that's attributed to him. Let me make the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. All right, many of you have heard that. And there's some truth to that. I guess he was actually speaking of another man who'd expressed something like that. And this is by no means gospel, but it is a rather keen observation. The singing is influential, but it's not only influential. Singing is also an expression of what you already believe. It's a natural human expression of what is important to us. Over and over again, the Psalms remind us to sing unto the Lord. Isaiah and Jeremiah use the same phrase, sing unto the Lord, time and time and time again throughout Scripture. Paul writes to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Paul writes to the Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I suppose we could, with benefit, um, explore how singing affects us psychologically and emotionally and so on. I'm not, I'm not going to get in, into the, the technicalities of it, but let, let's just, let's just uh, suffice it to say that singing is oftentimes a more emotional uh, and a, a, a more emotional expression than what is written or spoken. Singing often connects us emotionally with those we are listening to or those we are singing with. And so I appreciate the variety that we have in our service. Part of our service is teaching, like we were uh, engaging in here a little bit ago. Some of our service is singing, some is praying, some is preaching. But in a very real way, singing, I think, connects us with the people around us, with the people that we're singing with, uh, more so than just listening to preaching does. There's a mutual experience. There's a commonality in singing together. And we are instructed to teach and to admonish one another in song. And to admonish means to bring to mind or to warn and so that's how we're supposed to, that's the kind of song that we're supposed to sing. The, um, the, first, the first song that I know of 
that was sung in the history of the world was the song that the morning stars sang. God asked Job the question, where were you when the morning stars sang together? That was at the creation. So I don't know who the morning stars are. Maybe it's just a, um, a poetic expression. I'm, I'm not sure. But that's the first, it's not the first reference we have in Scripture of singing. That's in Exodus 15. You may turn there. But the, um, the first song that we know about that was sung was sung by the morning stars at the creation of the world. Exodus 15 is the occasion, is the song that Moses sang after that the children of Israel were brought through the Red Sea, after that they had been delivered out of Pharaoh's hand, that man who repeatedly hardened his heart and who rejected the mercy that God wanted to extend to him and whose heart God hardened and through his hard heart, God's will was accomplished and he, God, reigned sovereign in all of that situation. And so the children of Israel had fled Egypt. They had celebrated the Passover. They had fled Egypt and they had come to the Red Sea. And wouldn't you know, Pharaoh once again decided he wants these people after all. And so he pursues them with his chariot and his horsemen and There's a big army coming after the children of Israel, these defenseless group of people. So there they were, the Red Sea ahead of them, the pursuing Egyptian army behind them, and God opens up a way when Moses extends his rod out over the Red Sea, and God parted the waters and the children of Israel went through that water, went through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the Egyptian army decides that they're going to try the same thing. I guess it was one of the most foolhardy military expeditions ever to have uh, been embarked on in the history of the world, I'm sure. And it didn't work out good at all. And they drowned in the Red Sea. And this is the song of Moses and the children of Israel. I will sing unto the Lord. This is Isaiah, I mean, sorry, Exodus chapter 15. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. And he goes on. They sing this song of victory and praise to God. It's a song of deliverance. They sing of God's mercy. And they sing about how God will be feared among the heathen. And then it says in verse 20 that Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and dances. And Miriam answered them. So she sang the same song back to the song that Moses was singing Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. 
Now I want you to think about something here. Is that the song that was sung, the music it was sung to, the singers, and the one that they were singing about were all in agreement and harmony. All right? Think about that. The music, the message, the singers, and the one being sung about. All these different parts of this whole occasion were in agreement and harmony. Now, the children of Israel, after they had sang this song, after the destruction of the Egyptian army, encountered bitter waters at Merah, and um, they didn't have anything to eat and God gave them manna and so on. And we're not going to rehearse that story, but they came to Mount Sinai. And I, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. This is less than a year later. God had told Moses to come up to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he was given the law. He was given the tables of stone where the Ten Commandments had been engraved on. And in the meantime, while he was up there for this extended period of time, the children of Israel thought, they gave up on him. And they said, for this man, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And they decided they're going to set up their own form of worship. And they made this golden calf. And they were worshiping that. Verse 17. This was now, Moses was coming down off the mountain. Joshua, his servant, was with him. Let me start reading in verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand, and the tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other side were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, Neither is it the voice of them that cry of being overcome, but of the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and broke them beneath the mountain. And he took the calf which, he had, which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strewed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. From the singing a song of praise to God for the victory that he had given them over their enemies to singing the debauched songs accompanying the pagan worship of the golden calf took them less than a year. The golden calf was a, uh, something that they had learned in Egypt. The worship of a calf. And the calf was a symbol of viral power. And you don't have to imagine, you don't have to let your mind wander just very far to imagine what was going on here. It says that Aaron had made them naked to their shame amongst their enemies. That's in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked 
for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame amongst their enemies. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. If, that, if, if uh, being made naked means that they took all their clothes off, or it's also rendered different places that they were unrestrained. The outcome's probably about the same. But it says that Aaron had made them naked to their shame among their enemies. So picture this. Unrestrained people dancing in worship of a representation of virility and power. And all the while ignoring the message that God was giving them. So you can't sing a hymn in that context. Once again, the music and the message the object of worship and the worshipers were all agreeing together. The music and the message, the object of worship and the worshipers were all in harmony. They were all agreeing together. Just, just hang on to that idea for a bit. And I want to look at a few different songs in Scripture. Godly singing is a glad response to have been rescued from sin. Jeremiah chapter 31, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for the wheat and for the wine and for the oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness. Or I will satisfy, is what that means, the soul of the priest with fatness. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Godly singing is a glad response to have been rescued, to have been redeemed and ransomed from sin. Godly singing exalts God's goodness even in hard times. Jehoshaphat had a problem. The Moabites and the Ammonites, along with the children of Mount Seir, were coming together against them in battle. And it was a tremendous arm, and the prospects didn't look good for Jehoshaphat and the children of Israel. And Jehoshaphat prayed earnestly, and he reminded God that they had not been allowed to um, invade the Moabites and the Ammonites' territory in their journey from the land of Egypt. And he reminded God that God had promised them that he would help them if they called on him. This is part of his prayer. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 20. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. And so a prophet named Jehaziel, now Jehaziel was one of the descendants of the sons of Asaph. Do you, do you recognize that name? You should if you read the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms were written by the sons of Asaph, and this Jehaziel was one of their descendants. And he prophesied that God would deliver them. And then it says in verse 21 and 22 of Second Chronicles 20, and when he had consulted with the people, that's Jehoshaphat, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty 
of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir when they were come against Judah and they were smitten. So what happened was that apparently there was an internal squabble in this allegiance that had been made between the Ammonites and the Moabites and the children of Mount Seir. I think they were probably descendants of Esau. And um, they started fighting each other. And a, an army that's fighting itself just doesn't have any chance. And they, they just basically annihilated themselves. And that's what happened. And there's a lesson here for us. And that is that a song of praise to God is a powerful weapon of war against the enemy of our souls. A song of praise to the beauty of holiness is a powerful weapon against the enemy of our souls. Third point here is godly singing comes from a glad heart. It is not sung because a person has to. Singing is spontaneous. And singing a good song, singing a godly song, comes from a glad heart that has an appreciation for the redemption that God has given them. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. The song of the redeemed is a song that is sung as a witness of the unquenchable and unshaken joy in the life of a believer. In Acts 16, we have the story of how Paul and Silas had come to Philippi and they had cast out a spirit of divination out of this young girl that some scoundrel handlers had been exploiting because of her powers to, to foretell the future. And of course, they saw that it's, it says when they saw that their, the hope of their gain was gone, they made this big ruckus and they blamed Paul and, Bar Paul and Silas for teaching unlawful and anti-Roman doctrine. And so Paul and Silas were unjustly jailed without trial. They were beaten. Their feet were fastened in the stocks. And so there, there they were sitting at midnight. And it says they were singing. They were singing loudly and clearly enough for the other prisoners to take notice. The jailhouse was broken up by an earthquake and the jailer and his household came to believe in the Christ of whom Paul and Silas were singing about. Singing in the midst of trouble is a witness to the unquenchable and unshaken joy in the life of a believer. Reminded me of a story that I read <coughs> written by Nick Repkin in his book, The um, The Insanity of God. It writes of a fellow named Dmitry, a Christian prisoner in Soviet Russia, held for 17 years. Dmitry had two disciplines that he exercised constantly. One was Every morning, he would stand at attention 
face to east, raise his arms, and sing a song. And the reaction of the 1,500 other prisoners in the jail were predictable. They would laugh and jeer. They would bang their metal cups against the bars. They would throw human waste at him, anything to try to get him to stop singing. His other habit was that whenever he would find a scrap of paper, he would pick it up if he had a stub of a pencil, and he would fill it with as many scriptures in as tiny writing as he could. And he would stick it on a damp pillar that was in his cell as an offering of praise to God. And of course, this got him into trouble, but he steadfastly refused to give up his two disciplines. And finally, after years of suffering, he gave up. His captors had made him believe that his wife had been murdered and his children had been given to the state. And he gave in to his captors to be able to go find his children. So he was supposed to sign a confession. And the night, the, the night before that he was scheduled to do that, his family, who was in fact alive and growing up without him, was at that very time praying aloud for him. By a miracle of God's grace, he was given not a vision, but he was able to hear his children pray for him. The next morning he accused his captors of lying to him about his family because he was sure that what he had heard was real. And he refused to sign the confession that he had been planning to sign. And sometime later, he found a whole sheet of paper. And he said that God even put a pencil beside it. And he picked them up and he filled this entire sheet front and back and stuck it onto that cold, wet pillar. And so enraged, the guards dragged him from his cell. And as they were taking him to where they were going to kill him, fifteen hundred hardened criminals stood at attention faced east and began to sing. They sang the song that he had been singing every morning for 17 years. He said it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. The guards released him and stepped back from him in terror. Who are you? They demanded. He said, I'm the son of the living God. And Jesus is his name.
I am the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. The guards returned him to his cell and released him sometime later. Power of godless singing. The power of the testimony of joy and gladness that is unshaken in suffering. All right, I want to get a little practical here now as far as singing and so on. I suppose you could say that a song has two parts. The first is the message, which is primarily expressed in the words of the song, the lyrics. And secondly, the, the music which carries the lyrics of the song or the message of the song. I think we'd agree that the music should enhance rather than detract from the message. And I think we'd agree that primarily we should be thinking about the message and secondarily about the music. And there's a funny thing that happens when we first sing a song that we don't know. And if you're like me, it takes a little time to get our minds around the music, to get, our, to get the music in my head. And until that happens, it's, it's hard to give the message the amount of thought that should be given. I guess it just kind of goes with the territory. I don't know what to do about that, but it just seems that that's how it is. And gradually, as we become familiar with the song, the message becomes more and more accessible to us. So here's, here's the point. If it's always wrong to have more emphasis on the music than on the message, we'd have a real hard time learning new songs. But the goal is to be able to sing a song well so that the music can convey and enhance the message. So young people, chorus practice, go for it, right? But the, the music is not an end in itself. The music is to be learned, and we should do this in church. The music is to be sung well so that we can convey the message in a good way. But there's a third component as well. And there's a human element to the songs that we sing. And I told you you're going to have to give me a little bit of space because some of this stuff is, is pretty subjective. So here's, here's my thoughts. Okay? What happens when a good hymn is sung by an ungodly person? How about if you don't know that the singer is ungodly? How about if a good hymn was written by someone like Martin Luther who derided our spiritual forebears? Some people think that the line in A Mighty Fortress is Our God that goes, um, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, is a direct reference to Anabaptists. I don't know if it is or not. It may well be because he hated us. And we turn around, we have his song in our hymn book. What do you do with that? I don't know exactly. But I'd like to offer us just a little guidance perhaps. There's no songwriter, there's no hymn writer, and there's no singer who is perfect. There are, in fact, very few of the songs that we sing that are written by those whose theology we profess to love. Most of the songs we sing are written by people with whom we would not fellowship with on a formal level. Did you ever think about that? There was one who was perfect and whose teachings we must wholeheartedly embrace and submit to, but to my knowledge, 
He left us no songs. We have a record of him singing a song with his disciples before he went out into um, the garden where he was, uh, the garden of Gethsemane. Tradition has it that that was Psalm 17. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, and so on. But he didn't write it in songs that we sing. So we may just have to live with some subjectivity here. I'm not advocating carelessness with the songs that we sing. But let me let me just offer you this. If it can be uplifting in spite of the author, or if we don't know the author well, the song may well be sung to edification. But if the knowledge of the author is distracting to us, if the knowledge of the problems that the author had is distracting to us, we may be better off not singing it. Some years ago, let me give you an illustration. Some years ago, there was a popular song entitled Watch the Lamb. Some of you may remember that, written by Ray Bolt. As far as I can tell, the message of the song was good. It described the father taking his sons to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. It happened to be the Passover, where Jesus was going to be crucified. The song follows the man's comprehension of Jesus being the final and the ultimate Passover. As far as I know, it was theologically sound. In fact, I remember that song being quoted as poetry one Sunday morning here at our communion service. But since then, the writer of this song has come out publicly as gay. And so I think we'd all agree that with the knowledge of the writer, with that knowledge of the writer, we'd be better off not endorsing the song. So there's, there's some things here that we just sort of have to think about and just kind of use common sense to go through. Here's another question. Does all singing need to be connected to worship? Is there any room for non-religious or a neutral song? I think we'd agree that there is. Many of us have songs in our heads about the numbers of days in a month or perhaps the location of the states that's in the union. Our, our children sing a song like that. But we do well to keep in mind the emotional connections of a song that are made by singing a song. We do well to remember that every song was written for a reason. If the song was written as a basic tool, sing it. But I propose that the scope of non-religious songs that we should sing is probably pretty narrow. It goes a little bit like this, that if you hang out with friends who don't have a biblical worldview, there's a pretty good chance that they will rub off on you. And the same thing happens, and perhaps even more so, with the songs that you hear. If the song portrays a worldview that is not biblical, it sticks more than just hearing someone tell us the same thing. So those are some of the questions that we deal with. And I'd, I'd like, I, I think perhaps the best scripture to bring to bear, to, to bring to bear in many of these questions is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast 
that which is good. Check everything and then hold fast that which is good. In other words, check everything, hold on what's good, discard what's not. The NIV says, test everything, hold on to the good. So let's apply this test to some of the things that we've considered. The music, the message, and the messenger. Okay, Whether it's the writer or the singer that you're listening to. All right, let's, let's apply the test, the first test. Let's apply the test of 1 Thessalonians 5 to prove all things and to hold fast to that which is good to the, in relation to the message. Is it the, theologically sound? Does it convey truth clearly? So I'd never heard this song before. I googled this to, to see what some of the top Christian hits were of 2021. This is the second most popular song of last year. It's called Hurricane, written by Kanye West. He was a one-time presidential candidate. I don't know if you remember that or not. He ran against Donald Trump for the, for the uh, Republican nomination. He's recently separated from Kim Kardashian, if you know who that is, I don't know anything about her except that she's this woman who's probably most famous for exposing her body and um, so on. And he's also a Christian rapper. And this is the first verse of the number two hit song in the um, Christian world of last year. See this in 3D, all lights out for me. All lights out for me, lightning strikes the beach, 80 degrees, warm it up for me, finally free, found the God in me. And I want you to see, I can walk on water, a thousand miles from shore, I can float on the water. Father, hold me close, don't let me drown, I know you won't. And he goes on to sing about the emptiness of riches, about the emptiness in alcohol and living the fast life. And then this is the last verse. I see you in 3D, the dawn is bright for me, no more dark for me, I know you're watching me. 80 degrees, burning up the leaves. Finally, I'm free. Finally, I'm free. As I go out to sea, I can walk on water. Won't you shine your light? Demons stuck on my shoulder. Father, hold me close. Don't let me drown. I know you won't. Now, I suppose there's a chance that somewhere there may be someone that can hear that song and be pointed in the right direction or be encouraged. And we'll let that. But the question is, is Hurricane theologically sound? Besides the quite troublesome bit about looking for the God in you, I don't know that there's just a whole lot of outright heresy. It does carry a theme of redemption and regeneration. But contrast that and that theme to these words of a song that we sing sometimes. Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin the blood of Jesus whispers peace within peace perfect peace by thronging duties pressed to do the will of Jesus this is rest now I'm not going to tear the text of either of these songs apart it's, to me it's not really hard to see or to understand that if we apply the First Thessalonians 5 test I think the answer becomes clear. All right, number two, in relation to the music. Does the music line up with the message? 
Now, I had told you that when Moses sang his song of deliverance, the music, the message, the one they were singing about and the singers were all in agreement. And I proposed the same thing about when they were singing around the golden calf, that the music and the message and the singers and the theme of their song was all in agreement. I want to bring that to bear here. This is perhaps where the most controversy lies in discussions about what, what music a child of God should listen to. All right, so let me, we're going to test the music now, the, the style of song that it is and how it's sung and so on. All right, this test has to assume that the song in question already has passed the first test. It is theologically sound. But let me offer you this, that for the most part, the music and the message will line up. I said for the most part, the music and the message will line up. The world doesn't sing hymns. It sings of betrayal, of lust, and of pleasure. It sings of rebellion and hatred. Outright sensuality is going to be sung to sensual music. Now, applied honestly, this rule can be quite instructive. Think about this. Country music sounds the way it does for a reason. Rock music sounds the way it does for a reason. It's because the sound of the music conveys and it endorses and it carries the theme. of the message of the song. Now let me say this, that compromised theology is going to be sung to compromise music. The music helps convey the message. So a good song shouldn't have the same sound as a bad song. And here's where it gets a little bit interesting. I get it. It's not that way always. The real, there's a real problem with Christians thinking that they have to become like the world to win the world. So this kind of compromise and cross-bred music deserves the same kind of suspicion that we exercise toward a compromised gospel. A health and wealth, cheap grace gospel should never be preached or endorsed among us, even if it's promoted as being attractive to seekers. And neither should the kind of music that the world has invented that promotes sensuality and rebellion used, be used to convey the message of the gospel and to portray the truth. Honestly listen to the music you're listening to. Ask yourself the question, who is informing the music that they are making? The sound of the music, does it endorse the message of the gospel that you want to be listening to? Or is it a sound that's borrowed? Apply for Thessalonians 5 again. If it's good, hold fast to it. If the sound is generally used to convey sensual, rebellious, and ungodly themes, don't listen to it. If it's the same sounds that the world is making, don't listen to it. Discard it. It's not just real hard if we stop and think about it. And the third test 
or the third area where we're going to apply the, the First Thessalonians 5 test is who is bringing you the music? So the song that you're thinking about has good theology. It has good music. The third question is who is bringing you the music? And once again, this test will only work if the first two questions have already been answered to the affirmative. There's a popular a cappella pop group that you may have heard about, Pentatonics. What do you do with them singing a song like Amazing Grace? Two of their members are openly gay. Will their sinful lifestyle compromise the message? Perhaps not. When they sing Amazing Grace, the message of that song has been well established. It has been espoused by Christians all over the world for two centuries. They're not going to compromise the music by having someone like that sing the song. The issue lies not so much in the message being compromised as it lies with what we start to think of the singer. So it seems to me that we would tend to become immune or calloused to their sin. When we connect with them on an emotional level, when they sing a song, when they sing a hymn that we all love. If you want to listen to Amazing Grace, find someone whose lifestyle is upright to listen, to sing that song, or to sing it with. Test the singers and the writers. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. If they pass the test of being good and godly people, listen to the music and sing their songs. But if they're not, don't. God has given his people a song to sing. I waited, patient for, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. So here's, here's, the, here's the test again. Is the message of the song biblically sound? Does it proclaim the truth? Second, is the music consistent with the truthful message? And third, is the singer's life or the one you are singing with in line with the scriptures? Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. And allow me to add, if it's not good, if it doesn't pass these tests, discard it. Don't listen to it. There is a passage that we should read in closing in Revelation chapter 5. John saw this book that had seven seals 
And there was no one who was worthy to open this book. And John wept much, he says, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders, verse 5, one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and I want, I want you to see this picture of the Lamb of God. I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and seven and, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. May God give us grace to walk in his way that we can be a part of that unnumbered number praising him for eternity. Let's kneel for prayer.